It's good to be together today. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter number 2. We're going to continue where we've been uh, going through verse by verse the book of Acts. And uh, we want to think about today commitments of a a vital church. That's what we see in this passage. Acts 2, beginning there with verse number 42, commitments of a vital church. And let's do this. Uh, once you find your place in Scripture on your device, would you stand with me as we show reverence to God as we read from His Word? Let's stand together for God's Word to be read. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we're beginning. I hope you'll follow along in Scripture. The Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, excuse me, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, From house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Father, thank you for the Bible. And we pray today that you'll uh, speak to us as a congregation. And God, we pray that you'll encourage us in our faithfulness as we serve you. God, I pray for this community around us that so much need to know that there is a a God who loved them and who uh, was giving himself for us. We pray, God, that you'll use our witness here together, and we pray, God, that you'll use your word now. Help us as we attend to it and listen, God, that we can live it as we leave here, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You, you can be seated. And uh, I have seen, I don't know if you would know Ed Stetzer or not, but uh, Ed Stetzer is what they would call a missiologist and uh, basically studies church growth dynamics and and cultural trends related to congregational issues. So I kept seeing this data that said basically over the last 20 years that uh, the average size of the median congregation had shrunk from about 137 regular attenders to 65. And so I was looking at that, and this is the place that you find that. The source for it is for, uh, faithcommunitiestoday.org. They did a massive survey that involved the uh, uh, 15,000 congregations in, in uh, collecting data to observe these trends. And so they said that in the past 20 years, the median attendance size has decreased by over 50% from like it says, 137 to 65 attendees in we- uh, weekly worship services. This means that at least uh, 175,000 faith communities, which is half of the number of uh, congregations that exist in the U- U.S., ha- uh, have 65 or fewer people in attendance on any given weekend. Guess what? Dot counts our attendance every week. We averaged about 61 over the last several, uh, last couple of months. So we're in that what is now the uh, congregational sweet spot for smaller member churches. You notice that it says 175,000, yet there are 350,000 congregations in uh, the U.S. And so that means, we're going to talk about it in a moment, but there are basically two kinds of churches that are serving people today. Smaller member congregations like this one and then churches that tend uh, toward larger attendance and 
uh, have a different model. Sometimes it looks like um, multi-campus, satellite campuses, but they're, uh, they tend to be either very large churches or they tend to be churches that are small like this church is uh, right now. And so it's interesting as we think about this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at to, today, what it means to be vital. I think it's important to think about that. Over the last 10 years or so, church revitalization became sort of a, um, uh, there's a market there for different aspects of, there are different names that people assign to it. Sometimes they call it church strengthening. That's the preferred name for some people. Sometimes they call it church revitalization. And so, uh, you know, just want to think about that, that what people have been recognizing for about 10 years is that there is this critical kind of issue of numerical decline where this church or one similar to it, uh, 20, over the last 20 years, the trajectory has gone, right? I mean, that's what the data says. That's what the reality here says also that people who have been here long enough would say, that's what happened, yep. You know, we went from a church that's about twice the size that it is now to the size that it currently is. That happened, and it's happened in a lot of places. And so, you know, I think about questions like that, and I want to say, what is going on? Why? Why is that the reality that churches have faced? And so I thought, here's this I put together this morning when I was thinking over my notes again. You know, thinking through the impact of this, characteristics of decline in congregations. But that's not all this is. Sometimes it's causes, it's characteristics. But, you know, most churches would say that they came out of uh, the other side of COVID impacted negatively. Sometimes they would say, well, we created the live stream culture. And now it's easy for people to access a service without leaving home. But COVID definitely sort of, people would say we were headed in this certain direction, but COVID punted us even further down the road in that regard. Uh, here, here is a characteristic of a church that's in decline, inward focus. No community ministry or engagement. or well, No might be too strong a descriptor. We, we could say little community engagement or awareness, or ministry happens. You start, what happens is the focus gets turned inward on the people that are already there, and we forget that there is a community around us of people who still need Jesus. And that's one of the characteristics of a church that's in decline. Demoralized, discouraged people are in those kinds of churches a lot of times. Depleted people, that's who's in a church that's been experiencing decline for some time. Why? Because more and more, uh, fewer and fewer people are doing more and more stuff. That's why. Fewer and fewer people are trying to do more and more things. And so sometimes you start to go, okay, well, then you have to think about your values differently inside. But that's a characteristic. Critical mass there. I have a friend who uh, wrote a book on church decline and strengthening and he talked about critical mass that means that sometimes churches reach this uh, tipping point that's hard to come back from one encouraging sign here I see it in Sunday school is like um, this is not a congregation of people who are all gray haired 
You know, no offense to the gray-haired people at all. Because if I had hair, it would be mostly gray by now, I think. But it's not a church that, you know, it has a lot of younger adults. I've joked around that some of them are of baby-making age. They just haven't started having babies yet. So that's a healthy sign for the life cycle of the church in the future. It really is. You know, when I think about, you know, us and our realities and these big picture kind of things. But sometimes churches hit critical mass and it means that it becomes virtually impossible for them to recover vitality again. And you have to think about, man, how close are we to a reality like that? And how serious should we be about it? You know, if that's the case for for us. Survival mode, maintenance. This is a characteristic of a church in decline, survival mode. In in other words, instead of uh, thinking missionally and... You're just like, how do we make it week after week? How do we keep our head above water? Confusion rather than deliberate purposeful actions. In other words, sometimes it's like, we don't know what's going on. What do we do, right? How do we stop this? How do we get a tourniquet on it and turn it around into a, a, a flourishing environment? What do we do? So just so you know, you're not on an island. 175 other congregations have experienced very similar dynamics and are trying to figure out the same sorts of behaviors and realities and how to, how to persevere through it. We, us, uh, together. But it, it requires, in the place of confusion, deliberate, purposeful action. In other words, sometimes what happens is we, we sort of go through the motions And we forget that if we just keep doing what we've done, nothing will change. Something has to change to make things different. And so confusion, sometimes that can persist for a little while, but sooner or later you have to move on to deliberate behaviors that give you a different outcome. And so there are boogeymen. Sometimes I've used these uh, rationalizations. We rationalize. We say, well, here's what's happened, secularization. Well, that certainly has happened where, you know, I I noticed this when I was an associational missionary. I would go to 36 congregations in three counties to assist them with needs. That was my job for 12 years. So when Frankie and I would leave home, we would go sometimes and stop at Parker's and get gas. And you guess what I saw at Parker's? Boats, ATVs, jet skis. My assumption was that these humans were not on their way to church that day. I think it was a pretty safe assumption. So secularization actually has occurred in our culture where people have drifted away from spiritual truth as the defining uh, part of their life toward just living for the temporal. That's secularism. We strip important things of spiritual reality and de- definition. That's secularism. So, but it's a boogeyman if we say the reason our church can't flourish is it's an ex- it can become an excuse and a rationalization. Because you think about the first century culture, what was it like? Were they experiencing uh, in government and, you know, the day-to-day realities? Was it an environment that was favorable for the flourishing of Christianity? Not in the way that we would think. It was 
godless. Their culture was godless. In fact, they faced adversity and opposition. So I think about that's a boogeyman, generational drop-off, institutional mistrust. Those things are true, that people now today, what characterizes younger human beings is that they stopped granting to institutions automatic trust. Well, if people live through things like uh, pedophilia as the marker for spiritual leadership, which people did in the 80s and 90s, of course they stopped trusting churches. If they lived through all the shenanigans that they saw happening in the big evangelical world, of course they stopped trusting institutions. If they experienced a lack of loyalty in the workplace from their employer, of course they stopped trusting institutions. That's what happened. However, there are countermeasures like authenticity and genuineness and uh, doing away with hypocrisy that what's at the core of what Christianity is, people still need. They still need it. And then, you know, sometimes I think we go, well, the, the church environment is almost evenly split between the haves and the have-nots. Guess which part of that we're in? <laughs> we're a have-not. We're not like, we don't have unlimited resources. We don't have unlimited people. We don't have unlimited staff. So you've got kind of this divide, but... It, if it becomes for us an excuse and a, a rationalization for not flourishing, is it's not helpful. So these are just some things. This is not the first time I've thought about this, okay? Church revitalization became in uh, North America in the last 10 years or so, maybe a little longer, uh, a market where now seminaries offer degrees in church strengthening. Why would they do that? Because they realize that this pastor, this guy that wants to be a pastor, is going to graduate from seminary and go to a church that needs to be revitalized, restored, strengthened. I, I went to Orlando a couple of years to a conference called Renovate that a, a guy just started being interested because you could see what was happening in a lot of places. And this guy named Tom Chaney put together a very impressive and helpful conference called Renovate. So I went, and then as an associational leader, I took some other pastors with me because I knew that what was being offered there was helpful. It absolutely was. A lot of insightful books are written by practitioners, and uh, there, it's just a, a need to arrest decline, to figure out um, how do we flourish, how do we become vital. And so here's what I thought about in preparing. If if uh, revitalization is a need, and then what was it in the first century church that made it vital? It was a vital church, right? When you read about the book of Acts, it's vital. What's ha they had 3,000 new believers come into the congregation on a single day. It was vital. It was not depressing, I can assure you that. They were not wiped out with discouragement. They were experiencing hope in droves. That's what was going on. So if we look at them and we say, okay, they were a vital church. What was going on there? 
that made it vital. If a church needs revitalization, what is it that they, the church was attaining to, but now it's maybe not attaining to? So those are the questions that I think are helpful to think about through this text today. So narrowed it to a few things that I think are very obvious. The first one that you can see in the passage that we read is that a church that's vital is Bible-centered. They were committed, the word is devoted to the, the apostles' teaching. Now we know that the apostles were teaching from the, my, the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Prophets, the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers. and They didn't have the completed Bible, they were writing it. They were in the process of writing it. These were the people that God was speaking through to form a community of people that were founded on truth. But now we have the Bible, and it is the commitment, the resource that we need to have a flourishing community or to continue to have one or to have one that's on, continuing to be on its way to flourishing. Bible being at the heart of what we do. Because I've got all kinds of opinions, but none of them are as important as what thus says the Lord. What God says, that's what, what will change a person's life. And what people need is for their lives to be changed. The scripture says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There's a, a passage that in Colossians says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying that there is like a framework of belief, that there are commitments that a person has to have to experience Scripture in their life. So I think about that word devoted and what it implies. A person who is devoted to something has made a priority of it in in their life. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, verse 17. He said, this was Jesus' prayer for us, for every believer. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He says, the word of God is truth. He prayed that we would be sanctified according to truth. And he says, your word is truth. And if God hasn't spoken and revealed himself, I don't know what we're doing here. I just go somewhere else, do something else. The underlying premise that church is based on is that God spoke, God revealed truth to us, and that he gave us a, pur- a purpose and a, a understanding of life and what it means. So as I say, devotion means that something or someone is for, we usually think of devotion related to a someone being foremost to us. If we're devoted to something, it's reflected in the priority that we give to it. So if the word of God, if we said, hey, I'm devoted to scripture, well, the way that you would prove that is by just looking at your daily behavior, right? Am I devoted to the truth of scripture? Well, that means that we spend time reading, internalizing, meditating on scripture. And we are devoted to it within a community of other people. We're, we say, I'm going to continue to have that commitment to scriptural truth in, in my life. And we, we look at this church and what they were like. Uh, Craig Keener says that 
there, what you see happening with them, he compares it to New Year's resolutions, which can lose their uh, people lose their enthusiasm. Probably everybody in this room made a New Year's resolution of some sort. Maybe you're you stuck to it and you're still doing it. That'd be awesome. But he says definitely what happened in the lives of these people is that they were continuing in the commitment that they made. They made this commitment to Christ, but now they're continuing in it. He says they took the radical step of immersion. They were baptized as followers of Christ, and immediately their life became integrated into this new community. That's what happened. They were baptized as followers of Christ. Then they became integrated into the new community. It became a family. It became a priority. They were devoted to that. And so scripture is what hinges and holds everything together. The early church, R.C. Sproul says, was a Bible-studying church. They were. When the apostles, we'll see it in Acts, they go to a place called Berea. You remember what the Bible says about the Bereans? It says that they studied those things daily to see whether or not they were accurate or true. They didn't just buy whatever anybody told them. They studied the Bible to see whether or not the the things that they were being told uh, matched what Scripture taught. I like this quote from R.C. Sproul also. He says, The first sign of a Spirit-filled church is one in which the Spirit-filled people do not flee from Scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it to have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the Word of God. But we think about what the Bible is for. It's not just for information. I used to carpool with this guy. I worked at um, Savannah Riverside in Aiken, South Carolina, and I, there was a guy that lived near me. We were very dissimilar. We were both Falcons fans. That was about everything. That, and we worked at the same place. So we had those things in common. But he was not a believer. In fact, he was a skeptic. But he knew more scripture than most Christians that I knew. He read the Bible. He knew what it said. He just didn't believe it. So knowing the Bible is not the, is not the thing, it's not the goal. It's a part of it. But living and being transformed by the Bible, that's the, that's the goal. Thinking deeply about what it says, but applying it in our lives in practical ways. It was written to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, the psalm writer says in Psalm 119. Thy, thy word, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That's what, what's important about it. And churches that flourish where there's vitality occurring are congregations that are Bible-centered. But we also see that the, the church in the first century, what was it about it that made it vital? Community had real meaning. Community had real meaning. So this is an interesting study because they, the, they had what we would call communalism. Communalism. Not communism, but communalism. Because the Bible says that their ties to one another were so deep that they were together. That's the idea. They were together. They were selling possessions and giving to meet needs. Nobody called their property their own. What? What? Is that how we do it now? No, of course not. There have been efforts at this in uh, the history of 
Christianity. Sometimes it was uh, not, not even Messianic community like the Essenes. If you read about church history, you see that these people cloistered themselves away from others and they lived in this very tight-knit community. But then you have the Mennonites. You ever heard of Mennonites? Usually if you stumble on a Mennonite bakery, you have found something really worth exploring. Mennonites live in tight-knit communities where there is sharing and no sense of personal property, and it's defined by a lot of things. Uh, the Moravians, historically, I don't know why all these groups start with the M, but they, they do, the Mennonites, the Moravians, monastic movement. The monastic movement was people cloistering themselves into communities to fortify themselves sometimes in an unhealthy way, but it, the idea was communalism. The difference in it and communism is that communism is godless utopia that always turns into power and control and uh, manipulation. But communalism was the idea that people were impacted by the idea that they belonged to one another. And so most of church history, people stopped behaving in this way, but they also continue to understand their responsibility to each other as having um, meaning, like we're going to help each other when there's a need. That's what it means to be part of a community. This is community. Community means that you help each other, that you, that you think about the things that God has put into your community uh, trust as a stewardship that's what it is that our possessions who who does our stuff belong to the bible says the earth is whose yours no it says psalm 24 verse 1 the earth is the lord's and everything in it is god's so what we have in god's understanding is a stewardship of you are a manager but god is the owner and so sharing occurred to meet needs, and that's always been a Christian position. And the way that we do it now looks different than the way that they did it, but we still have this understanding that God put us together and that if anybody among us has a need that we, we are committed to caring and helping, and that's the part of it that's eternal and transferable. Also, we can see that there was heft in relationships. You don't say heft all the time, but that their relationships were meaningful. They, they, we talked about this in our small group time uh, also today. This, uh, somebody sent me an email, a friend of mine this week, and this quote was in the email that was a link to some, an article this guy John Tyson had written. And I've actually cited this recently too. I saw the um, info, but it, it says... Loneliness is an epidemic today, and so many feel unseen and unknown. According to the CDC, social isolation and loneliness have been linked to increased risk for heart disease and stroke, type 2 diabetes, depression, anxiety, addiction, suicidality, and self-harm, dementia, and earlier death. He was talking to men, so he says men feel lonely at work, lonely at church, and lonely at home. And what you, what you see here, like what do you notice when you read the passage? What were they doing? They were occupying the same space. They were having meals with each other. 
think about this, the group of people that you know. How many people here have you ever sat down and had a meal with? They had meals together. It was, the relationship was not superficial. It had depth. They had been in each other's homes and they were, and maybe some of that is um, because of the way that they, their living arrangements were situated. But if our faith is just a sometimes Sunday morning thing and doesn't turn into a solution for isolation and loneliness for us and others, I can't help but think that somehow we're missing the mark. We're missing the mark. What they had that was attractive, that God was empowering, was meaningful relationships. Then they, it was characterized by sharing, as we see, but this is not just talking about material sharing. Koinonia is the uh, word that we'll get to. You hear people talk about doing life together, right? It's an overworked cliche, but guess what they were doing? They were doing life together. They, they were connected to one another. And so koinonia. That's the Greek word. Cohen is common. The Greek, the Greek language they spoke in the first century was Cohen Greek. It meant this is the language, the Greek uh, that we all speak. Koinonia was what you have in common with other people. Fellowship was holding in common. And so I thought about church is people, not a product. And uh, the difference is you can consume a product but we connect with, celebrate with, cooperate and collaborate with people. Person isn't a product to be consumed. It's a distinct, you know, you're distinct and I am too. And, you know, we talked about this in Sunday school for just a, a little bit of our, our time. But, we, you know, knowing each other, being known. I can tell you for me. Like, uh, something that upsets me as much as anything is if I feel like I'm being ignored, if I feel like I'm not being heard. And and I think together that God's ideal for Christians in community is that there is a, something that draws us together so that, you know, we know each other's names. We know something about each other's story. So that who we are together has meaning. You know, if a church grows larger and larger, that probably happens in a small group connection where you're going to have. We we once attended a church of 700 regular attenders when I was at school in South at Southeastern. Uh, we attended a church there called Faith Baptist Church. Met on the campus at the school had grown like wildfire. It's impossible to know 700 other human beings well. And where you, what you find out, though, is that it's still possible to know people. You just know the people that are in a, a small group, maybe. But it's important, and that's what they had going on in the first century, is that they shared meals and space. They, uh, it says, all who believed were inhabited in the same space to know each other, encourage each other as followers of Jesus. And it's possible to infer, too, from what it says here, that they shared communion together and the breaking of bread. That's the way it puts it, the breaking of bread. 
And so, if so, that's exactly how Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper. Do you remember that? That they were there for the Passover meal, and Jesus turned it into the Lord's Supper, into communion. But they broke bread together. They spent time together. Why don't we do that more often? Oh, it's inconvenient, right? Inconvenience is us. It's what they did. It's what the Scripture says happens when community has real meaning and is vital. And God was nourishing uh, the people in their relationship with each other and nurturing them through communion. But we see in this passage, too, that a church is vital when it depends on God. And they express their dependence on God in prayer. Uh, so how do, how do we know? They continued in do, apostles' doctrine and prayer, breaking of bread, the things that we see here. So prayer... Uh, is vital, you know. When if a church is uh, struggling and declining, uh, it's most likely that there's not a presence of prayer among the people. That's not always corporate prayer, but it ought to be corporate prayer. When we uh, had prayer for months and months before we went back to small group study, you know what you noticed about it? Didn't feel all that compelling to people. Is it okay to tell the truth? It didn't seem that compelling to people just to meet and pray. But if a church is going to experience God and flourish and be vital, prayer has to be a compelling aspect of it. And that's what you see. They were committed to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer. God at work through prayer and what... Uh, was what was energizing the movement. When we don't take time to pray, here's what we're basically saying. I got this, God. I don't really need any help. I'm doing okay. No. Probably the reality is you're not doing okay at all. But they, they were a praying congregation. Here's what happens in prayer. You remember how God said... Uh, Cast your cares on me because I care for you. If we, if we engage in prayer, we're casting our cares on him. And we're finding out, guess what? He cares for me. I was reading in the Psalms this past week that the Scripture says, Seek him with all, our, all your strength. Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord with all your strength. When I have a commitment in my life to pray, I'm I'm doing what the scripture says. I'm seeking him with my strength. So prayer expresses that we trust in the Lord with all our heart. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. Prayer is a way of me saying I trust in you with all my heart. As I'm praying, that's what I'm confessing in my behavior. It keeps us grounded in our humble need for big help, and we need big help. It nudges us out of our despair and into hope. That's what I notice sometimes. My brain can get so messed up, and all I see is the big old problems, and I get so discouraged, and then I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, maybe I should put the brakes on and try to look at my source here a little bit. And when I put the brakes on and I pray and I look at my source, guess what I find there? hope, just God doing the things that he told me he would do. 
So prayer is interrupting ourselves. It's a, again, why don't we do a lot of these things? I'm not trying to like throw a guilt trip. I'm just saying worthwhile things inconvenience you. Worthwhile things inconvenience you. They make us uncomfortable. They cost something. And we see in the attitude that was pervasive, fear. And that seems out of place for us. I thought godly love cast out all fear. It does, the, the wrong kind of fear. But this is the right kind of fear we're talking about. Not the wrong kind of fear. Their attitude was changed by the reality of God. The, fear means there's no flippancy about God. That's what I notice now, too, that characterizes our commitment to life in God is a lot of nonchalance, a lot of flippancy. Take it or leave it, kind of. That's not what godly fear looks like. God was real to them. We hear about play in church in the past. People would say they would play in church. I'd say it's tough. We sometimes seem to go through the motions, and it says something when we're just going through the motions. Like this, when we're talking about God, who are we talking about? Just the person who's ultimate, right? Just the person who died for us and to whom we owe our life and allegiance. And, and they had an awestruck attentiveness. That's what, it, when I, I try to find, you know, make a definition for fear. Awestruck attentiveness wouldn't be a bad way of understanding what fear meant in, their, in this passage. God was palpable. We know that because miracles were being done for one thing. There was evidence of God's work among the people. And I would say God, uh, intensity is fine with God. <laughs> when you think about the Laodiceans, what did he say to them? He said, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, you make me sick. That's what he said. I'd say God would say intensity is definitely better than being lukewarm. And fear is a difficult concept for us to conceive of in Christian community. It, I, I think it is, if I was trying to define it, which I was, it's an appropriate sense of who God is and where and who we are. That's what fear is, an appropriate sense of who God is and who we are. It's seeing ourselves proportionately, and it results in humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Who is the humble person? The one who has an appropriate appraisal of themselves and God. That's who. That's a humble person. God gives grace to that person. He assists. He helps. Do we want God's help? Well, the pathway to getting it is to recognize ourselves appropriately according to what we see in the Bible. The people in the Bible who humble themselves were never humiliated. We think humble, it's just a step from there to humiliation. No, not in the way that God did it. God didn't humiliate people. They didn't grovel. God says when you humble yourselves, what you find is different than you think you find help. The person who humbles themselves finds God's assistance and help because they're thinking about life properly. He sees us as we have the right understanding of who we are as a creature with uh, needs. Think about all the people in the Bible who saw God, like what happened. You remember Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, saw the angelic beings flying around the throne, holy, holy, saw that the train of the robe of the Lord filled the temple. 
How, what did I, how did he respond? Woe is me, that's what he says. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, that's what he said. And what did God say to him? Well, I'm looking for somebody to represent me in the world. Who do you think I'm going to send? Just the guy that said, woe is me, I'm undone. That's who God ends up identifying and using. He didn't humiliate him. When he was humbled, he was useful. That's what happened. So when he saw himself appropriately, which is God's holy and I'm not holy and I need God's holiness, then God found a person he could use. And you see this over and over again when people encounter God, Moses before God. I'm not a, I'm not a person who can do this. God says you're just the person to do it in that case. So we see that they had fear characterize the community, but also hope. Hope doesn't mean that everything's always ideal. At least uh, that's not what I've found it to mean in my own life. But in the last part of this passage, they you see that they had hope. What how, what, how does it describe it? Simplicity and gladness of heart. Hope they had in their lives. They were experiencing God's goodness, and it, it looked like joy in their situation. They saw something that was bigger than their temporary setbacks. There's nothing more life-giving than participating in a hopeful community. Nothing more life-giving than participating in a hopeful community, a place where we see God being big the way that he is. They had gladness, simplicity of heart. They weren't stagnant and stuck. God was working, and they did not have reservations about the priority of uh, being together. They were together daily, it says in the temple. Boy, if we said, hey, we're going to start having church every day, we'd buy time out. we got other stuff to do. But it says that the, their commitment was pervasive. They were together daily. I don't know what to say about that, except that it's easy to lose our focus and drift into isolation, which isn't good. So... We started out talking about renewal, revitalization. We could call it revival. Sometimes that's what people say is the church needs revival. We could call it renewal, revitalization, primitive Christianity. Sometimes that's what people call it. Apostolic faith, sometimes that's what they call it. Strengthening, that's what people will will say. We're not always sure when we read Acts which behaviors from their time are transferable to ours and which ones are time-stamped while the Word of God was being confirmed by the apostles in their lifetime. But I think as you read this passage, you can see there's an awful lot that has application to us now. What's the missing element? Where does our experience differ from theirs? Who changed? I think about God hasn't changed, has he? When we read the Bible, is the problem with God usually or the people of God? Not usually with God, right? That's why he sends prophets to say, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you. I've got a problem with the way things are. Does God ever need to be warned about worldliness encroaching? Yeah, no, of course not. It's not God that needs warnings. Does God ever have to be told not to get pressed into the world's mold, or is that us? 
Does God's love ever grow cold? No, of course not. Is it God who leaves his first love? No, it's God's people who gets distracted. Is it God who becomes selfish and shut up to others? No, of course not. That's us. So revitalization begins with changed attitudes and priorities. Not in God because God didn't change, but in us. That's where it starts. We're going to have a time of prayer uh, today, and I'm going to encourage you as God is leading you to respond. And and I always think sometimes when we're preaching, the uh, need is not um, something that you can necessarily even do at an altar. You're welcome to come and pray. And I'd love to pray with you. Certainly if there's a need that you have to respond, encourage you to do so. But a lot of times what we're hearing are things that we can only do on a continuous basis from this point forward as we uh, go back to our families and work and come back and worship the following Sunday. But uh, let's pray together as uh, we stand and sing. God, we're grateful for the truth of Scripture and how it uh, sometimes is difficult, but it's also uh, clear helpful, obvious, and I pray that you'll help us to be uh, encouraged and hopeful, Lord, as we think about what the Word of God can do, the power that's in it, the Spirit who moves and lives and uh, is still alive in us, your people today. God, we pray that you'll renew within us a sense of seeking you with our entire heart and living for you sacrificially, God giving ourselves to you without reservation, knowing that we'll never regret that. We'll never look back with a moment of remorse about our willingness to be yielded and surrendered to you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me?